Welcome to the Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer. I'm Krista Carmen. And this is... Murder Coaster. Welcome back as we continue with the saga of the Manson family's Leslie Van Houten. Last week, we saw a sweet suburban girl born in Iowa go from homecoming queen to hate street hippie to cult member in wild acid-fueled orgies and participating in a double murder. Today, ladies and gentlemen, we bring you the Leslie Van Houten story, part two. Coyotes in the desert, arrest, trial, rehabilitation, and release. Let's begin. When we last left off, Leslie Van Houten had just left the murder scene of the LaBianca house, hitchhiking back to Spawn's movie ranch with Tex and Patty. The family were hoping copycat murders would both free Brethren Bobby, the love of Leslie's life, and spark the coming race war, which would bring about the apocalypse. The city of Los Angeles went into a panic after the murders. Locks and deadbolts were flying off of store shelves. Ken Sporting Goods in Bel Air was selling 100 guns a day. Guard dogs sold out. Private security firms couldn't keep up and were hiring dozens of new employees. And there was just as much paranoia going on at the Spawn's movie ranch as well. The family were frantically making the move to Death Valley. There were a lot of whispers and rumors among the knife-wielding hippies about the murders, but many family members, like Bobby's pregnant girlfriend, Kitty Lutzinger, were completely in the dark as to what had actually happened, and honestly believed that the Black Panthers had committed the crimes, being told that by other family members. But everyone could sense it. Helter Skelter was coming down fast. Linda Kasabian, a.k.a. Iyana the Witch, in the meantime was sent by Charlie to go check on Mary, who was in jail for using stolen credit cards. And the witch took off with the car and headed to a commune in Albuquerque, New Mexico, leaving her daughter Tanya behind. What a total witch move. <laughs> yeah. And Tex, for some bizarre reason, he goes and tells Charlie he contacted his parents and they said the FBI were looking for him, warning to question him about some murders in Los Angeles. But it wasn't true. It was this bizarre, weird lie. He says he told it to Charlie to hasten the move to the desert. But regardless, this had to bring a whole new level of paranoia down. The family were truly riding the waves of fear now. The Manson family were well known to the police at this point. They'd all been busted in one way or another for stolen credit cards, public nudity, marijuana, LSD, and all while Manson was on parole. Why they kept getting off so easy and were able to continue on with their criminal enterprises for so long is unknown. Though many believe it is because Charlie's parole officer was affiliated with the CIA's MK Ultra program and they were studying him and the family. But, you know, we're not going to get into all that. If you want to hear about that, go back and listen to episode two, Charlie Manson, Iron Cross and Eagle Feather, or even better, read Chaos 
Charles Manson, the CIA, and the history of the 60s by Tom O'Neill. Regardless of the fact that they kept getting off, the Special Enforcement Bureau of the Sheriff's Office had had about enough. They knew about the outlaw bikers hanging around, the stolen vehicles, the dune buggy manufacturing line, the machine guns, the drugs, the underage girls. They went to the district attorney and a search warrant was issued. A huge raid was planned involving helicopters, horses, patrol cars, and 102 law enforcement officers. The raid, using land and air operations, was the first of its kind for the sheriff's department and was filmed to be used as a training film. By random chance, the night before the raid, the Straight Satan's motorcycle gang came to the ranch to round up delinquent member Danny DiCarlo. They were sick of Danny hanging around with these no-good hippies. He wasn't doing enough for the gang. He was shirking his duties. And the bikers even threatened to burn down the ranch. But old Charlie, he brought out the girls who put on the charm. And a big old party started. The bikers were flabbergasted when a flood of young girls came creeping down out of the hills. And at Charlie's command, began to strip naked. They partied late into the night, and many of the outlaw bikers ended up crashing at the ranch. At 4 a.m., before the first rays of dawn began to creep into the valley, large numbers of the Special Enforcement Bureau personnel began hiking into the ranch from the hills, armed with M-15s with razor-sharp bayonets attached, in an encircling maneuver that had been learned from surrounding Viet Cong villages in the Vietnam War. Just as morning light began to break, law enforcement raided, storming into the ranch, kicking in doors, barking orders, wrangling the startled hippies up into a circle in front of the saloon as two helicopters descended on the scene, kicking up dust and radiating intel to the boots on the ground. Leslie was sleeping naked on a mattress in the nursery with some of the children when the door was kicked in. She was rounded up, ordered to dress, and hauled to the circle with the rest. The children were taken to probation intake control and eventually sent to foster homes. They found guns of all kinds. Rifles, shotguns, pistols, even a violin case with a Tommy gun inside. There were stolen motorcycles and four converted dune buggies. But where was Charlie? He was missing. Had the infinite soul used his powers of levitation and floated away? Had he become a coyote and darted into the hills? Where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? The sheriff's deputies barked at the disheveled hippies. But no, Charlie Manson hadn't shapeshifted into a coyote or descended into the air on angels' wings. Instead, deputies found him cowering beneath a porch in the dirt. They ordered him out, and as he stood, a bunch of stolen credit cards tumbled out of his shirt pocket. He was dressed in buckskin pants and barefoot. They handcuffed and placed him with the others. Twenty-five were arrested altogether, most of the core family. But Tex and Snake were in Death Valley, stocking it with supplies. Squeaky began to cry, asking, who was going to feed old blind George Spawn and take care of him? Leslie was terrified. This was it. They'd put it all together. She was going to be charged with murder. It was all over. The gig was up. The game was over. And then the deputies read them their rights, and they charged them with auto theft. 
auto theft. A slow giggle began to rise amongst the ragtag hippies. Auto theft. The pigs had no idea what was going on, man. All this over some stolen cars. It was ridiculous. By the time they were being placed in sheriff's vehicles, they were all laughing. Leslie was hauled to the sheriff's substation, forced to take a shower, and sprayed with DDT. Just two days later, all charges were dropped. As the wrong date had been put on the search warrant. Just what the fuck? I mean, this is the stuff of conspiracy theory gold. How could this happen? Had a CIA plant changed the date to the 13th? Who was in on it? Who knew what when? But again, you know, we're just not going to get into this craziness. Maybe one day we'll do a show solely on the conspiracy theories and crazy random coincidences that encircle this case like dusty cobwebs. But this is Leslie's story. And our girl Leslie, Leslie Van Houten, was released from jail. Scrubbed clean and deloused with DDT. Headed back to Spawn's movie ranch with the rest of the family. All giggling, singing Beatles songs, and whispering about their good luck. How stupid the pigs were. How surely this was a sign that they were the chosen people. And living out the last days predicted in the Bible. But the ranch was a wreck. All the doors kicked in. The guns and dune buggies and credit cards all gone. And just three days later, the cops were back, busting Charlie in the middle of having sex with 17-year-old Stephanie Schramm, a local girl curious about these wild free spirits. They found a joint in old Charlie, but get this. It was tested and came back as not being cannabis. We know, we know, conspiracy theorists. Relax. We know it's too weird and too crazy to be coincidence. While the children were all put in foster homes, this didn't deter crazy Sadie, who went right out, found out where her son was, and kidnapped Zizo back. Because Sadie, of course she did. Things were tense on the ranch. George Spawn was upset, of course, as were some of the legitimate ranch hands, who had never been happy with all the hippies laying about. One of them was Shorty Shea. Shorty Shea was a wannabe Hollywood stuntman and legit straight-up cowboy. He could perform all kinds of tricks on a horse or with a gun. He'd been in a few films and had high hopes of making it as a Western star one day. Shorty Shea had always been a thorn in the side of the family. For one, his wife was black and would often bring her black friends to the ranch, which irked Charlie to no end and no doubt fed his paranoia. He'd also never liked Charlie and his followers and was often encouraging old George Spawn to kick them off the ranch, calling them lazy and obviously up to no good. He might have a point about that. (laughs) But uh, Squeaky, she had old George wrapped around her finger. So the family, they weren't going anywhere. Charlie came to believe Shorty Shea was not only behind the raid, but also getting busted smoking a joint and having sex with a minor in the back shack. Therefore, he came to the conclusion that Shorty Shea had to die. Shortly thereafter, Shorty went missing. Charlie claimed anyone who'd asked he'd gone to San Francisco for a job. But the giggling tales of murder could be heard whispered about 
in every corner of that spooky, spooky ranch. Rumors abounded about how he had died and who had done it. Leslie would later say, by that time, we all had our jobs to do. It was said that the entire family was involved, that they tortured him for days before ritualistically beheading him, dismembering the body, and burying his remains around the desert. He was a human sacrifice, offered up to the infinite soul in a sacred ritual that bound the family together for eternity. His spilled blood a testament to the ways of the coyote and the devil. But of course, like so many things involving these people, it was absolute bullshit. He hadn't been decapitated or dismembered when his body would eventually be found many, many years later. The skeleton was completely intact. Far from a magical ritual involving each and every family member, Scramblehead Clem and another really creepy guy, family zombie Bruce Davis, hit him in the head with a lead pipe and stabbed him to death. While Charlie watched and laughed, his body was just dumped down a hillside, hidden by erosion and time, not masterfully secreted about the desert in pieces by master criminals and witches. But Leslie was in charge of burning all his clothes. This much we know for certain. And on August 23rd, it was someone's birthday. <laughs> Leslie Van Houten turned 20 and was no longer a teenager. How did she spend this momentous day as she entered adulthood? Well, we couldn't find anything. But of course, since time didn't exist and clocks and calendars were banned from the family, there's a chance she didn't even know the day had arrived. We were able to discover that Leslie had been bitten by a Black Widow spider around this time and was laid up for a while, unable to walk. Sad, but maybe slightly poignant, a metaphor of sorts, for in many ways she had ingested the poison of a dangerous desert creature. Of course, Charlie abhorred hospitals and doctors and thought it should be healed by the eternal soul, that mind over matter should reign. So poor Leslie suffered for days, barely able to walk, before the poison slowly seeped away. By early September, nearly the entire family was in Death Valley. Only Squeaky and Katie were left behind at Spawn's ranch to care for old George. They'd managed to steal seven dune buggies and a red Toyota four-wheel drive pickup that Charlie had been casing for a while and finally managed to steal. They also had a green 69 Ford that had been rented with a stolen credit card. You know, one thing that the family never gets credit for, they were really good at stealing cars. I mean, really good. Even sweet little Squeaky, whose job it was to take care of old George Spawn and had never been part of any violence. And she really wasn't even a big part of the orgies either. She was said to be one of the best car thieves. They say Squeaky could hotwire a car in minutes and roar on out of there before anyone had a chance to notice her. I guess it's all about overcoming your fear and believing that property is theft. They shared everything. Why shouldn't the rest of the world share with them? Without thought, you can't get caught. Thinking is stinking and no sense makes sense. In love, there is no right or wrong. The garbage people, the ones thrown out by their parents, by their churches, by their schools, 
could now reign free in the desert with destruction and mayhem, living through the infinite soul of the universe. The outcasts now ruled a savage and barren land, and Leslie Van Houten was one of them, living out there in Death Valley by the way of the coyote. What went on in her mind? What, as the family would say, changes did she go through? We don't know for sure, but we can speculate. The glitz and glamour of the burgeoning hippie scene was gone. No more top hats and silly make-believe. No more free food from the diggers high on acid. Watching the Grateful Dead perform legendary shows for free right in the middle of the street. No more being the center of attention in the city. Now, Leslie Van Houten was just another creature in the hot desert sun fighting to survive. She was no longer the pretty and smart homecoming queen turned radical. She was just another desert animal eking out existence in a fight for food and survival. But Leslie was tough and devoted, and there's no reports of her wimping out, complaining, or ever trying to escape like some of the other girls did. She was committed, and as we'll see, will remain committed for quite some time. If anything, this time in Death Valley seems to have only cemented her relationship with Manson and the family. She would remain a steadfast soldier for many years onward. The family wasn't alone in Death Valley. Oh no, it attracted all kinds of miners and weirdos, desert rats. One was Paul Crockett, who was staking out a claim not very far away. And Paul was also hip to Scientology and Eastern philosophy, all that new age jive, as he was to rocks and mineralogy and mining for precious metals. Remember little Paul, the musician and cute hippie Charlie would use to recruit new girls? Well, he and another family member, Brooks Poston, started talking to this Paul Crockett, who told them they'd been brainwashed by Charlie, and they joined forces with him, leaving the family and moving into his cabin. Charlie was obviously really pissed off about this. And in an amusing series of events, Crockett and Charlie start putting curses and crafting invisible barriers and force fields on each other. And for a while... It seems Crockett's spells were working. Charlie wasn't able to get up to the Barker Ranch several times for all kinds of reasons, and they were all attributed to Crockett's magical powers. It was a literal war of the wizards in the desert. Totally. And, of course, Charlie threatens to kill them all. Charlie was also giving long sermons on the bottomless pit and revelations in the Bible. And I guess we just need to get into that insanity real quick. Let's do it. So geologically, Death Valley is a graben, meaning it was developed along formations that could conceivably house a large underground area. And there's a legend in the Hopi Native American tribe about an underground world, a third world, which is where the Hopi emerged from to dwell on the surface. Charlie took these geological facts and native legends and merged them with the bottomless pit from the book of Revelations in the Bible and a whole lot of LSD and Beatles lyrics and came up with the idea of the devil's hole, a place where the family could take refuge during the coming race wars and looming apocalypse. 
He preached it was a paradise with fruit trees and a race of perfect ageless people who were waiting for them to join them. As he put it, The pit leads to a sea of gold, man, hell. Every tuned-in tribe of people that's ever lived have escaped the destruction of their race by going underground. Literally. Dig. And they're all living in a golden city where there's a river that runs through it of milk and honey and a tree that bears 12 kinds of fruit, man. A different fruit ripening for each month so there's an endless supply of food. And you don't need no candles or flashlights because the walls glow. It won't be too hot or too cold. There's a warm spring and fresh water. And it's just full of people down there just waiting for us. Well, this sounds like some kind of poetic metaphor. The family took it quite literally and spent much of their time in the desert searching with Charlie for the secret entrance. For, as it says in Revelations, quote, And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven onto earth, and to him was given the key to the bottomless pit, end quote. And obviously Charlie was the fifth angel, for it also says... They had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit. And they neither repented of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. Yeah, yeah, totally. It it all makes complete sense. Uh, (laughs) They even found this uh, hot spring that Charlie was positive led to the bottomless pit. And they tried to swim down into it, but it was like burning hot and they they couldn't get far. Must have been the flames of hell from the devil's hole heating up that water. <laughs> Meanwhile, Linda Kasabian, a.k.a. Yana the Witch, quietly crept out from New Mexico and was able to retrieve her daughter, Tanya, from the state without the family ever noticing she was in town and then headed to her mom's place in New Hampshire. 17-year-old Stephanie Scram, a high school girl you may remember, was having sex with Manson in the back shack when he was arrested for that joint. Well, Stephanie, she was sick of the square life living with her parents, sick of society and being a good girl. She had heard the hippie call to tune in, turn on, and drop out. So she called the Spont Ranch and told the family she wanted to run away and was picked up and whisked away to Death Valley. Stephanie was young, blonde, and very pretty, and Charlie seemed to really like her, lavishing her with all the attention the girls adored, attention they often fought over. One day, she and Charlie were out deep in the desert, target practicing with a rifle, preparing for the coming apocalypse. And when Charlie looked at her in that hot desert sun, a rifle in her hands, sweating, tired, Hungry and thirsty, he felt she looked homesick and sad. So he asked her, do you want to go home? The girl began to cry, and Charlie gently took the rifle from her, raised it up, and smacked her in the head with the butt and said, just forget about ever going home again. Just like he'd been trained to do when he was learning how to be a pimp from the stories he'd heard in the jailhouse as a child. 
Stephanie would later explain it away as him just wanting to see in a different type of way. Fucking hippies, man. (laughs) The family goes full-on hardcore desert crazy. This is the stuff of legend. They'd stake each other down to the desert floor to see who could last the longest, bugs and snakes crawling over them in the heat and sand. Some of them would go crazy, begging to be let up, kicking, screaming, and squirming against their bonds. But Charlie could lay there, staked to the desert floor with insects crawling all over him forever. Didn't bat an eye. He played with rattlesnakes as if they were toys and talked with the coyotes. He was at one with the desert. This is the Manson family that Wes Craven was writing about in The Hills Have Eyes. Wes asked himself, what would have happened if the family were never caught? What would they have become after a generation or two? And came up with the Jupiter family. Savage, inbred, hippie cannibals racing through the desert and attacking tourists. And Charlie Manson, the angel of the bottomless pit, was king, the embodiment of the coyote. Christ on the cross, the coyote in the desert. It's the same thing, man. Coyote is beautiful. He moves through the desert delicately aware of everything. Looking around, he hears every sound, smells every smell, sees everything that moves. He's always in a total state of paranoia. And total paranoia is total awareness, dig? You can learn from the coyote just like you can learn from a child. A baby is born into the world in a state of fear. Total awareness, dig? They spent their days laying phone wires across the desert, stashing cans of gasoline and foodstuffs, digging trenches, testing their endurance, racing around at insane breakneck speeds in their dune buggies, and eating handfuls of the famous orange sunshine acid they'd laid their greedy hands on. They maxed out stolen credit cards, buying knives, sleeping bags, tools, toolboxes, cases of motor oil, camouflage parachutes they could drape over their dune buggies and supplies to be hidden from aerial surveillance. And the really crazy thing is, the only reason they got caught was their own fucking stupidity, which we'll get into. But, you know, they could have lasted out there in the desert for a long, long time if they just played their cards right. Charlie began to rap about Nazi General Rommel, the Desert Fox, and his campaign across northern Africa. And the family would ride their dune buggies in a V formation, Charlie at the head. Charlie spray-painted his dune buggy, then threw sand on it while the paint was still wet to create a textured camouflage. He talked about taking over the nearest little town, Shoshani, and of terrorizing the police. They wanted to kill police officers, remove their clothing, and then pile their clothes up neatly in the desert so it looked like they'd just evaporated. The girls scrabbled around naked with huge knives strapped to their waists, completely feral. They danced around bonfires at night with their knives, slashing and stabbing at the air. The girls took to wearing a pouch of talachi leaves or belladonna around their necks. One day, Leslie was hitchhiking across the desert highway with Sadie when they got picked up by a trucker headed to Las Vegas, hauling a refrigerated trailer of fruits and vegetables. 
Leslie and Sadie put off their sexy vibes and came on to the driver and told them they were down to get it on and instructed him onto some back roads they knew down Route 178 into Death Valley to a spot that they were familiar with. Once they got there, they told the delivery driver that before they could make sweet love, they wanted to make him some coffee and slip some crushed talachi leaves into the boiling water. The man drank it and passed out, and the girls quick uncovered a dune buggy they had hidden under a parachute, broke open the truck hatch, and hauled away as much fresh fruit and vegetables as they could. As we said, Leslie was a loyal and devoted soldier to the cause of Helter Skelter. But the beginning of the end would come with an act of stupidity late in the night on September 18th, 1969, when Manson was leading the family over a mountain pass in their dune buggies. Roaring over Hunter Mountain, they came across a huge earth-moving machine that had been digging holes in the desert floor. Charlie was outraged, even out here in the desert, the wasteland where he was the warrior king. The man was encroaching, moving in, the great beast destroying Mother Earth. It was an affront to all they stood for, the purity of nature being defiled. So they took a couple cans of gasoline, dumped them all over the evil machine, a $30,000 Clark, Michigan skip loader, and set it alight howling with wild victory over their triumph as the flames encompassed it before racing away into the night. This piece of machinery belonged to park rangers from the Death Valley National Monument, and they were enraged. Together with the California Highway Patrol and the Fish and Game Commission, the rangers relentlessly began to track down who had committed the heinous act of vandalism. It would only take them three weeks to catch the culprits. Park rangers and highway patrol followed tire tracks through the desert, questioned miners and local store owners, and soon learned all about the band of marauding hippie outlaws running wild in the desert. Spotter planes were flown, abandoned ranches searched, tracks followed. The hunt was on, and Charlie had no one but himself to blame. Manson and the family became aware the police were after them and began only moving at night, staying hidden during the day in caves, mountain passes, and ramshackle shacks. They began to run out of food and water, and worse yet, drugs. All that orange sunshine now is just about gone. It all became too much for zombie murderer Tex Watson, and he did the unthinkable, abandoned the family. He drove off, saying he'd be right back with groceries, and instead went to Texas to his parents' house. Others began to run off as well, but not Leslie. Meanwhile, the police were now in touch with old miner and desert wizard Crockett, and now ex-family members Little Paul and Brooks, who told them everything they knew about the Manson family, warning them that they were armed, dangerous, and that the girls were like zombies trained to kill. And on October 9th, 1969, officers would raid a hidden bunker the family had made across from the Barker Ranch, basically just a carved-out hillside with some tin sheeting over it. 
They discovered it when Sadie walked out during the day against direct orders of Manson, wearing a bright red sun hat. Fucking Sadie, come on, get it together. Scramblehead Clem had been on guard duty and fell asleep. Officers found him snoring away beside a 16-inch sawed-off shotgun and 24 rounds of ammunition. Fucking Scramblehead, man, come on, that's not where it's at. And inside the bunker, they found former homecoming queen Leslie Van Houten, now budding desert coyote, as well as Sadie, Gypsy, Brenda, and Patty. Leslie gave the name Luvella Alexandria. And then, to freak out the square cops, stripped off all her clothes and urinated right there on the ground. That'll show those square pigs what's up. Ah, it seems she'd gone just completely feral and wild. Officers proceeded on and discovered another bunker with Sandy, Oish, and some other girls. With Sadie's baby, Zezu, and Sandy's baby, Elf. The babies were said to have been sunburnt raw, and one had a large cut on its face. Oh, man. And Manson always said the children were the real leaders. That's no way to treat your leaders. Uh, Leslie and the other girls were chained together and transported to the Independence Jail, where they were booked for arson, theft, and receiving stolen property. Leslie Van Houten was now behind bars, and she wouldn't be getting out. For a long, long time. As Leslie sat in jail with the other girls, a few days later, who else should be brought to the little jailhouse but the infinite soul himself? Jesus and the devil, angel of the bottomless pit and king of the devil's hole, none other than Charlie Manson. He'd been found hiding in a tiny cabinet on the Barker Ranch and had almost gotten away until an officer saw a tuft of hair sticking out. They were amazed that he'd been able to fit inside. At the jail, Charlie would utter coyote yips, and the girls would yip back. And in the exercise yard, the girls would raise their skirts and flash the guards. They all asked for peanut butter and honey and performed a purification rite with it. Whatever rite they did with the honey and peanut butter, it didn't work, for things were rapidly unraveling now. Detectives in L.A. questioned Bobby's pregnant girlfriend, Kitty Lutzinger, about the Hinman murder, coming down hard on her, and she told them she'd heard Sadie had committed the crime. Pressed to who this Sadie was, Kitty revealed her real name, Susan Atkins. Running her name, detectives discovered this Susan Atkins was now in jail in Independence for destroying the earth-moving equipment, and went to have a little talk with her. Crazy Sadie immediately confessed to killing Hinman. What went on in this girl's head, why she confessed, who knows? It's hard enough trying to get into Leslie's head, and we're not going to even try to understand the thinking of crazy Sadie. Sadie was transferred to the Sybil Brand Jail for Women in Los Angeles, and it was here that the Beatles' song Sexy Sadie They All Loved So Much would become like prophecy. Sexy Sadie, what have you done? You've made a fool of everyone. You made it clear for all to see. Sadie was bunked with one Virginia Graham, and Sadie, on the top bunk above Virginia, would gleefully spill all the family's secrets, telling her that she had, in fact, stabbed Sharon Tate to death while Sharon pleaded for the life of her unborn baby. 
Sadie told the shocked woman she had even thought about cutting the baby out and bringing it back to Charlie as a present. She also said they had a long list of celebrities they wanted to kill, including singers Tom Jones and Frank Sinatra. Sadie told the flabbergasted woman the family wanted to skin Frank Sinatra alive and then make little purses out of him, which they could sell in head shops so everyone could have a little piece of Frank. Virginia would relay all of this to the cops, hoping it would help get her a lighter sentence for a prostitution charge. Armed with all this information, Leslie was interviewed by homicide detective Mike McGann. It's a strange interview. She's coy and flirty with him, playing with him, not admitting anything straight up, but playing this little I-know-something-you-don't game. When asked about the Manson family, she replies, You couldn't meet a nicer group of people. He asks her, What did you hear about the Tate murders? And she replies, I'm deaf. I didn't hear nothing. Ha ha ha. Five people were killed that night, Leslie. Do you know what happened? I have a pretty good idea. Who did you see leave the ranch the night of August 8th? Oh, I went to bed early that night and really don't want to talk about it. Why? I just don't. I don't want to do nothing. Well, you're going to have to talk about it someday, Leslie. Well, not today. Then the detective gets to her, telling her, The family is no more, Leslie. Charlie is in jail. Clem is in jail. And family member Zero killed himself playing Russian roulette. This really gets to Leslie, who exclaims, He killed himself playing Russian roulette? By himself? Kind of odd, isn't it, the detective said. Yeah, it's odd. And Leslie, about the Tate murders. Well, Sadie has already told 15 people in the jailhouse that she was there and that she took part in it. That's incredible. Didn't she mention anyone else? No, except for Charlie and Katie. She mentioned Charlie and Katie? That's pretty nauseating. Sadie also said she went out the next night and killed more people. Sadie said that? Leslie was obviously astonished, as Sadie hadn't been there the second night, but Leslie had. Crazy Sadie was bragging about murders she hadn't even committed, and Leslie refused to answer any more questions. When the detective asked why she wouldn't talk anymore, she said, Because if Zero was suddenly found playing Russian roulette, I could be found playing Russian roulette. But Leslie now knew that Sadie was the snitch. And even though there was procedures in effect to keep Charlie from communicating with the girls, Leslie was still somehow able to get this information to him. In December of 1969, Leslie was given a psychiatric examination. And the psychiatrist said, that girl is insane in a way that is almost science fiction. But she was found competent to stand trial. She was also questioned by her lawyer on tape and lays it all out. How she believed Charlie was Jesus, that the Beatles were prophets. She even admits to being at the LaBianca murders and stabbing an already dead Rosemary. This hour-long conversation is on YouTube. And we'll put a link in the show notes. It's absolutely fascinating. But 
Here's just a little bit of what was said ever so lately edited for clarity. <clears throat> Leslie, do you think you're one of God's own messengers carrying out his will? You're going to really think I'm not, but yeah, I do. I think I'm an angel. So to speak, I don't have wings, naturally. I know I don't have wings. But I mean, I believe I'm one of the disciples. I'm one of the people spoken about in the Bible. In other words, what I feel is so real. I can't talk the reality of it, but I can feel it. It's a reality inside me. Oh, okay. Well, if you're an angel and Charlie's Jesus, and you're doing God's work to start the revolution, why do you think everyone's in jail? Uh, I don't know. I guess this just happened to let people know it was happening. Did you believe the Beatles were prophets? I, uh, I believed it. In the book of Revelations at the end of the Bible, it talks about a four-headed locust, and it just describes the Beatles so perfectly. The hair of women, faces of men, and the mouths of lions, and a shield of protected armor. And we thought that armor was like their guitars. Because their album, when we would listen to it, High on Acid, would say so much more. And someone even told me one time it was made to erase certain parts of your mind, how they gathered the electrical currents together when recording their music. And Revolution 9 is mostly a song of sounds, and it has rise, and it says stuff like, you're standing still. And we believed we were standing still because when you're perfect in your mind, you didn't age anymore. There was no getting old. Uh, um, uh, uh, okay, Leslie, you say, uh, Revolution 9, the Beatles song, and compare it to Revelations 9 from the Bible. Is there anything else in the Bible you think could be a Beatles song? Well, in Revelations 10 is when an angel comes out with one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. And he says to some guy, eat this book. It will taste sweet in your mouth. But when it gets to your stomach, it will be so sour, like in and out. So it's like saying you've only waited for this moment to arrive. And have you seen the little piggies? And helter skelter, when I get to the bottom, I go back to the top of the slide. Then I turn around and I go for a ride. And it's coming down fast. Helter skelter. Uh, and you were taking acid, you say? Yeah, we were taking acid a lot and listening to the album. And you say in Revolution 9, you heard Charlie's name. Yeah, there's a part where you can hear women singing Charlie's song. Your home is where you're happy. And on a different part, it sounds like they're just saying, Charlie, Charlie, Charlie. I don't know how many times they said it, maybe once. And the song, Me and My Monkey, we used to call Charlie the Monkey. And there were so many weird things in the album. The thing about Charles is he's very out front with people and people have a hard time seeing him. And the Beatles said he's got to be good looking because he's so hard to see because so many people couldn't even look at him. But we knew we were part of Revelations in the Bible. We knew we had a part in it. So in it, it talks about a hole in the desert to get the, to the kingdom. And we started to look for the hole in Death Valley, where underneath it's the Armagosa River and blind fish and all kinds of things that just made us believe there was a whole world underneath and that people were already under there just waiting for us. A thousand people would go down there for like 50 years. And I don't know, I don't remember the names, but something was going to happen and we were going to come back up. But wouldn't you be pretty old by that time? No, we wouldn't be old because we wouldn't age. 
just to get in the hole, you'd have to be perfect in your mind and your body. And I was going to say something else, but I can't remember what it was. How are you going to uh, get down to the center of the earth? Well, we hadn't quite figured it out yet. We were looking for the hole. That's what we were doing in the desert. And how are you going to start this revolution? By killing. If you could turn back the clock, would you do it again? Go to the LaBianca house? Yes, because you can't change what is. I had no control, and I'm not trying to pin it on Charlie, because I don't think he had control either. When he talks, when he talks, he talks from another place. He doesn't even talk with words that other people use. And he used to even say, I've become an empty hole. I have no control of my actions, and I don't even think about what I'm going to do. And it was like that for a lot of us. We gave up our own want to the family. We gave our own want for the group. So on January 17th, Manson represented himself as Charles Manson, also known as Jesus Christ of the Family of Infinite Soul, Incorporated, filing a writ of habeas corpus, charging the Los Angeles County Sheriff with depriving him of spiritual, mental, and physical liberty in an unconstitutional manner, not in harmony with the laws of man or God, and asking to be freed at once. It was denied. Can you believe that? Jeez, oh whiz. To which Manson replied, Your Honor, behind the big words and all the confusion and the robes, you hide the truth. Sadie, meanwhile, gave a detailed taped confession about the Tate murders to her lawyer, who sold it for $100,000, not a penny going to Sadie, by the way, which seems a bit exploitative. It was published as a book entitled The Killing of Sharon Tate. Sadie then agreed to testify for the prosecution if the death penalty were taken off the table. But somehow Charlie, working in the capacity as his own lawyer, was able to get authorities to let him talk to Sadie. On March 5th, 1970, he spoke to her in this weird double talk gibberish that left investigators baffled to what they were actually saying. Man, how I wish I could hear that. Man, I really wish I could hear that one. And then he asked Sadie, Sadie, are you afraid of the gas chamber? And she said, no, I'm not afraid of it now. Sadie then sent word to the judge that she wanted a new attorney and repudiated her confession and blew the deal for no death penalty. Sadie was back with the family. Reunited and it feels so good. <laughs> <laughs> but behind the scenes, authorities had found Linda Kasabian, a.k.a. Yana the Witch, extradited her back to California with murder charges, and now she was offering to testify for the prosecution in exchange for complete immunity. While she had been the driver on both nights of murder, she not only hadn't killed anyone, she hadn't even been in either of the houses. And this kind of sad and funny thing happened. Hippie underground people, they started supporting Manson. He's like this ink or poison that infects what it touches taints it and peaceful flower power hippies started getting all weird bernadine dorn of the infamous weather underground 
gave a speech at Students for a Democratic Society convention saying, often those rich pigs with their own forks and knives and then eating a meal in the same room, far out, the weathermen dig Charles Manson. The underground newspaper, Tuesday's Child, which was touted as the voice of the hippies, put his picture on the whole front page under the banner Man of the Year. Manson posters and t-shirts and buttons were popping up everywhere and on sale in head shops. Super famous radical hippie or yippie Jerry Rubin of the Chicago 7, who organized so many of the protests back then, said, quote, I fell in love with Charlie Manson the first time I saw his cherub face and sparkling eyes. But all of this backfired terribly. Now the public was afraid of hippies. They couldn't get picked up hitchhiking. No one would give them spare change, support them. Many true blue hippies were disgusted by it all so much, they left the cities and moved out to the country, disappearing from public view, while others cut their hair and went back to the straight life, seeing some kind of dark flaw in it all now. In fact, the Manson family is often credited with killing the hippie movement and the flower power spirit of the 60s. And on March 6th, one of Manson's greatest dreams was realized. His album was released. Yay! Only it was released by a producer friend of the family out of his pocket as a favor, not by an actual record label. Only 2,000 copies were made. The album was called Lie, the Love and Terror Cult, and not surprisingly, did not sell well. Manson, meanwhile, was up to his shenanigans in court, making a motion that prosecutor Vincent Bugliosi be incarcerated under the same conditions he was to, you know, level the playing field and make it a fair trial. The judge wasn't amused and declared Manson unfit to serve as his own attorney. Gypsy, Sandy, and another family member were in the spectator section of the courtroom and went crazy, screaming and yelling, protesting the decision, and were arrested for disrupting the trial. Meanwhile, the love of Leslie's life, old Cupid, Bobby Boussier, once worshipped on an altar as the devil himself, man of the mountains, who lived to be free and wander the land as a top-hatted minstrel, was found guilty for the murder of Buddhist Gary Himmon and was sentenced to death in the gas chamber. Leslie, Sadie, Patty, and Charlie were all to be tried together for both the Tate and LaBianca murders. While Tex Watson was still in Texas, in jail now and fighting extradition to California. On the opening day of the trial, Charlie again asked to be able to represent himself as his own attorney. When the judge denied the request, he stood up, spread his arms and hung his head as if crucified. Leslie and the other girls quickly followed suit, mimicking their leader, the infinite soul, in mock crucifixion. The judge ordered Charlie to sit down, and when he refused, a bailiff grabbed his outstretched arms and attempted to bend them behind his back. Manson resisted, and they fell to the floor where a scuffle ensued as three deputies leaped in and attempted to handcuff him. The girls went crazy, howling in anger, Sadie bellowing, Why don't you just kill us now? And utterly devoted Patty, who once wanted to be a nun and viewed Manson as Jesus returned to earth, 
screamed. Don't you know who we are? Don't you know who you're crucifying? As Manson was led away in handcuffs. During jury selection, Leslie and the girls caused a bit of a scene by wearing ultra-short miniskirts and flashing and spreading their legs toward the jury box. Sadie wore a blouse that was so light and clingy, her breasts appeared basically bare beneath it, and her nipples were very visible. And the court actually ordered that she wear a brassiere. John Lennon gave an interview at this time, saying about the song Helter Skelter, How could Manson find death in its lyrics? I'm a peace-loving man. If I were also a praying man, I'd pray to be delivered from people like Charlie Manson. End quote. When Leslie's lawyer, Paul Fitzgerald, showed it to her, her response was, Can you imagine? John Lennon, they've gotten to him. (laughs) Oh, a true believer, and maybe a prophet, and that she used the word imagine before the song came out. Maybe that song was about Leslie. No, definitely not. The song Imagine is not about Leslie Van Houten. That we know. (laughs) The jury selection alone took a month, and Leslie and the girls spent most of their time drawing in pads with magic markers. Manson told Leslie to fire her lawyer and hire a different guy. So she did, dismissing Ira Rayner and bringing in Ron Hughes, a big hippie-ish guy who would somehow die during the trial in a bizarre flash flood incident in the mountains, his body found crammed between two rocks, a death often attributed to the family, but with absolutely no proof to back up the accusation. With crazy Sadie back in the fold, the three Manson girls make their grand television appearances, strolling hand in hand down the corridor toward the courtroom, Leslie in a shiny satin blue baby doll dress, hair and pigtails with lush curls tied with perfect pretty bows, beside her Patty in pink and Sadie in purple, singing away at the camera about Death Valley. It's time to call time from behind you. The illusion has been just a dream. In the valley of death I'll find you. Now is when on a sunshine beam. On Friday... July 24th, Manson strode into court with an X carved into his forehead and made a press release saying, I'm not allowed to be a man in your society. I am considered inadequate, incompetent to speak or defend myself in your court. I have X'd myself from your world. Over the weekend, Leslie, Sadie, and Patty would hold bobby pins under a flame until they were glowing red hot and press them into their foreheads, branding themselves with X's, so that on Monday, when testimony began, all the defendants wore the scars of being X'd from society on their foreheads. X's. And it soon spread to the street, the other family members on the outside all following suit and marking themselves X'd from the world. On Monday, July 27th, Yana the Witch, the driver of the death car, who'd recently delivered a baby in jail, testified for the prosecution and laid it out for everyone to hear. All of it. The orgies, the acid, life on the ranch and their crazy beliefs, and the murders. She was in a little girl dress and had her hair in pigtails. She testified for over 18 days. About Kasabian, Yana the Witch, Manson had this to say. I didn't put her there, you dig? 
All she had to do is say, well, I'm not going with Tex. So they all drop some acid and they all go out somewhere and freak off. And I say, oh, fuck. What am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to be responsible for their freakouts? Did I say to stab Fryowski, Skamowski? I don't even know these people, man. I had to ask somebody else where I was at. And she's shifting all that guilt and all that blame onto the poor old devil. In a really smart move, prosecutors subpoenaed each and every Manson family member, which means they weren't allowed to be in the courtroom anymore. But they wandered the halls with their Bowie knives, flashing them to reporters who gleefully photographed them. Yeah, you gotta admit, that makes good copy. (laughs) On August 13th, Iana the Witch, Linda Kasabian, notorious thief, driver of the car on both nights of murder, who actually was supposed to be one of the girls who planned the murders and petitioned Charlie to allow them. She was set free. All charges dropped in exchange for her testimony for the prosecution. Yana the Witch was now a snitch, a Judas, the Charlie's Christ. Since family members, now subpoenaed, weren't allowed in the courtroom, Squeaky, Sandy, several of the others began camping out on the corner of Temple and Broadway, right in front of the Hall of Justice, sleeping in a white van. They'd kneel on the sidewalk for hours and hours, proudly showing off the X's carved into their heads. When Squeaky was asked about hers, she said it was a falling cross. Squeaky pledged to kneel there until the end of time, or until Charlie Manson, the infinite soul, devil in Christ in one, was released. She wouldn't, though. Something Charlie would never, ever let her forget. In September, Tex Watson was finally extradited to California, where he'd face his own separate murder trial. He was gaunt and sickly-looking, and playing the crazy card to full effect, saying, Act bananas, eat bananas, an obvious pun showing his plan of worming out of the charges with an insanity defense. He refused to eat and had to be fed through a tube in his nose, and refused to bathe or shave, going into what was described as a feral state. When old Charlie heard about the state of Tex, he replied, Give me 20 minutes with him alone. I'll bring him back. On September 26th, Spawn Movie Ranch burned to the ground, the blaze heightened by 80-mile-an-hour winds which destroyed 100,000 acres. With the Spawn Movie Ranch no more, the remnants of the Manson family were left basically homeless. On October 5th, after some damning testimony from Spawn Ranch hand Juan Flynn, a huge Panamanian man who'd often flirted with joining the family, Charlie announced he'd like to ask a question. The judge denied the request, and Charlie hollered, I'm going to fight for my life one way or another. You should let me do it with words. To which the judge replied, If you don't stop, I will have you removed. Charlie screamed back at him, I will have you removed if you don't stop. I got a little system of my own. And he leapt over the council table clutching a sharpened pencil like a knife, landing on one knee and heading directly towards the judge. Bailiffs and deputies leapt on Charlie and pulled him away, back into lockup as Charlie screamed at the judge, In the name of Christian justice, someone should cut your head off! As the chaos unfurled, Leslie, Sadie, and Patty 
began to chant the Buddhist death chant they had sung with Gary Hinman as he lay dying. Nam myo ho rangi kyo. Nam myo ho rangi kyo. Nam myo ho rangi kyo. On November 20th, Manson was allowed to make a formal statement to the court saying, I never went to school, so I never growed up in the respect to read and write too good. So I have stayed in jail and I've stayed stupid and I've stayed a child. I'm just a reflection of every one of you. I have killed no one and I have ordered no one to be killed. I may have implied on several occasions to different people that I may have been Jesus Christ, but I haven't decided yet what I am or who I am. My father is the jailhouse. My father is your system. And each one of you, each of you are just a reflection of each one of you. If I could, I would jerk this microphone off and beat your brains out with it because that is what you deserve. That is what you deserve. On January 25th, after seven months of trial, the jury found Leslie Van Houten, Patricia Krenwinkel, Susan Atkins, and Charles Manson guilty on 27 counts of murder. Out on the street, the ex-headed girls proclaimed society had marked themselves guilty. Then the penalty phase of the trial began, the world wondering would they receive the death penalty? On February 16th, Leslie Van Houten took the stand, her lawyer hoping to show a remorseful defendant and gain sympathy from the judge. Instead, Leslie made statements that would forever haunt her and complicate her parole hearings for the next 52 years. She sat on the stand with that X burned into her forehead and started by saying she knew nothing of the Tate murders and didn't know where they were even heading the night of the LaBianca murders and had no intentions of hurting anyone. Then her lawyer asked her, Leslie, do you feel shame or a sense of guilt for having participated in the death of Mrs. LaBianca? Do you feel sorry? Sorry is only a five-letter word. It can't bring anything back. I'm trying, Leslie, to discover how you feel about it. What can I feel? It happened. She is gone. Well, do you wish it hadn't happened? I never wish anything to be done over another way. That is foolish thought. It never will happen that way. You can't undo something that is done. Oh, snap. It's basically a Shakespeare quote from Macbeth. You know, uh, Lady Macbeth is probably not the best image to use to gain sympathy with jurors. Then her lawyer asked, do you feel as if you wanted to cry for what happened? Cry for her death? If I cry for death, it is for death itself. She is not the only person who has died. Well, do you think about it from time to time? Only when I am in the courtroom. Whatever sympathy her lawyer hoped to elicit, was gone, gone, gone. On March 5th, Manson appeared in court with his head shaved bald, the X in his forehead now fashioned into a crude backwards swastika, saying, 
Don't you know the devil is always bald? Two days later, Leslie, Patty, and Sadie shaved their heads as well, and on the street, the rest of the family followed suit. On Monday, March 29th, 1971, the jury returned their verdict. Death. As the jury recited the sentence, the verdict of death read over and over for each of the 27 counts. Manson stood up and screamed at the judge, Hey, boy! and was pulled from the courtroom. Crazy Sadie then stood up and screamed, Better lock your doors and watch your own kids! And Leslie Van Houten, too, leaped to her feet, howling, You blind, stupid people! Your own children will turn against you! Manson was sent to San Quentin's death row. Leslie, Sadie, and Patty were sent to the California Institute for Women at Frontera, where a special death row had to be constructed just for them. Leslie, when asked by the press if she was guilty, stated, According to the other truth, which is not the truth, we are guilty of murder. But according to our truth, which is the truth, we are innocent. No sense makes sense. In August, Tex Watson went on trial for his role in the murders and on October 21st was sentenced to death. But on February 18th, 1972, the California Supreme Court voted six to one to abolish the death penalty. When word hit the newly constructed death row at the California Institute for Women, Leslie leapt up and began to gleefully shout, That's us! That's us! No gas chamber! Manson formulated a new religion in prison called Nunes, the Order of the Rainbow. Leslie was the color green, squeaky, obviously red, sandy blue, Susan, violet, Patricia, yellow, and Brenda, gold. But by 1975, Leslie was finally done with Charlie Manson and denounced the family. She started writing, had a short story called I'm a Fibbin, published in an anthology of prison fiction. And she began to feel deep remorse and guilt. She says she felt Rosemary LaBianca's presence and it wiped her out. She was terrified with coming to grips with what she had done. But she began that journey. Leslie says of her time with the family. I became saturated in acid and had no sense of where those who were not part of the psychedelic reality came from. I had no perspective or sense that I was no longer in control of my mind. In August, a California Court of Appeal dismissed her conviction, raising 65 points of reversible error, and a new trial was ordered for Leslie Van Houten. In December, Leslie was brought from the California Institute for Women to Civil Brand Jail in Los Angeles for her retrial. The retrial began in March and lasted four months. It was deadlocked at seven for first-degree murder, five for manslaughter. She was released on $200,000 bail. Leslie was out of prison on bail. She worked as a secretary for a lawyer and lived with a female author who was writing a book about her called Straight Up, which has never been published, but I badly want to read. John Waters said it was quite good. She even attended the Oscars quietly, which is crazy, right? Yeah, totally. 
quietly mingling with Hollywood elites who had no idea they were talking to one of the infamous Manson girls. But if Leslie thought freedom was hers to be had, she was dead wrong. For in the next trial, six months later, she was found guilty on two counts of murder and one on conspiracy and sentenced to seven years to life. Leslie returned to prison where she stayed busy. She taught illiterate women to read, narrated books on tape for the blind, stitched part of the AIDS quilt, and clerked for administrators, the warden, and even the head of education. During her incarceration, Leslie became friends with underground filmmaker John Waters. Waters, known for making movies about the filthiest people alive, had long been obsessed with the Manson family. He even attended the first trial, an atmosphere he described as, quote, electric with twisted evil beauty, end quote. He was so inspired by the strangeness and the savagery that he went back to Baltimore and made his cult classic film Pink Flamingos, dedicating it to the Manson girls, Sadie, Katie, and Les. He began visiting Tex Watson in prison, befriending Tex's girlfriend, a young German girl who had somehow found her way into the family. In 1985, Rolling Stone magazine asked Waters to interview Charlie, but instead he requested to interview Leslie, who he says reminded him of some of his wild friends, who also had fashionable hair, ate copious amounts of LSD, and loved to freak out the squares. Waters' friends would appear in his movies doing everything from ventriloquism acts with their assholes to eating actual dog shit, all in the name of shocking society with art. He felt that if Leslie had an artistic outlet as they had, she would not have ended up in the clutches of Charles Manson, a man he described as the crazy guy at the bar you try to avoid. So he wrote to Leslie, asking to interview her, but she wrote back saying she had no desire to be in Rolling Stone magazine. She said she was deeply ashamed of her past and was now actively avoiding her infamy and wanting to move on with her life. Leslie, she had no idea who John Waters was, but the two slowly started corresponding. More and more came pen pals, and eventually Waters visited her in prison. Within a few years, they were close friends. Leslie saying in a letter, you inspire me to do something with myself. John Waters says she inspired him as well, inspired him to, quote, believe that if you work hard enough on your damaged psyche, you can eventually come out of it with some kind of self-respect and mental health, end quote. Leslie states she found it incredibly ironic that her parents and supporters worried her friendship with John Waters could hurt her reputation. Which I do too. We're <laughs> John Waters. Uh, but the two remain close friends to this day. And uh, I'll post some pictures of them together on Instagram. They're so cute. In 1980, a group called Friends of Leslie formed to set up a favorable climate for her release. They began appearing on radio shows and in newspaper articles, extolling her complete recovery. At a hearing on January 17th, there were more than 100 letters deposited with the parole board. Leslie was 30 years old, mature, rehabilitated, but her parole was denied, saying, quote, I'd feel better releasing a middle-aged, 
40-year-old Leslie Van Houten than a 30-year-old Leslie Van Houten. In 1981, a psychological evaluation for the Board of Prison Terms noted that in all the years since 1974, all of the reports have indicated no findings of mental disorder or organic impairment and no present violent or dangerous tendencies, along with favorable parole prognosis, end quote. One psychiatrist even saying that the changes he'd seen in Leslie made him a believer in the process of rehabilitation, continuing, quote, Leslie's personality growth is genuine. I believe that should Leslie Van Houten be permitted to re-enter society, she would not again violate its mores, end quote. But on April 22nd, 1981, the parole board again denied her release. For her release hearing in 1982, Leslie had acquired over 900 signatures to petition her freedom. But this is when Sharon Tate's mother, Doris, began to become involved in the parole hearings of ex-family members. She compiled a list of 32,000 saying Leslie should stay in prison. And I hear her, I completely understand, but, you know, Leslie wasn't even there the night her daughter was killed, so... I don't know. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's complicated. It's tough. Yeah. That same year, Leslie married a man she'd been corresponding with named Bill Sywin, who got into trouble writing bad checks and was caught with a women's prison guard uniform. Leslie divorced him, but, but this incident would cloud the rest of her parole hearings. Even if she wasn't a part of it, it showed bad judgment that she'd married a criminal who may have been planning her escape. Yeah, getting caught with a woman's prison guard uniform not a good look when you're married to uh, someone serving a life sentence for murder on august 23rd 1989 leslie turned 40 a moment which the parole board had previously said it would feel comfortable releasing her but citing her former husband she was again denied parole in 2002 leslie was said to be completely rehabilitated, a shining example of the best results possible in our correctional system, but was again turned down. But Superior Court Judge Bob Krug issued an order requiring the parole board to report back to him within 60 days some evidence why and what she must do to rehabilitate herself to gain parole. The judge pointed out that Van Houten had been a model prisoner during her 31 years of prison, with years of service to other inmates and finishing all prison programs available to her. But Governor Gray Davis announced, regardless of the outcome, he would not sign the release papers, which ended it right there. In 2013, Leslie was denied parole for the 20th time. In announcing a de decision to deny parole, the commissioner of the hearing board said that she had failed to explain how someone of her good background and intelligence could have committed such cruel and atrocious murders. On April 14th, 2016, after all these years of getting so close, the California Parole Board recommended parole. But I hope Leslie didn't get her hopes up because the California governor, Jerry Brown, vetoed the release on the grounds that, quote, both her role in these extraordinarily brutal crimes and her inability to explain her willing participation in such horrific violence cannot be overlooked and lead me to believe she remains an unacceptable risk to society if released, end quote. In 2017, she was again recommended parole, and again, Governor Brown vetoed it. 
And she was recommended parole again in 2019. And this time, new governor Gavin Newsom vetoed it. Vetoing it in 2022 as well, when the parole board again recommended parole. On May 30th, 2023, a California Court of Appeal in Los Angeles set aside Governor Newsom's denial of Van Houten's parole. And on July 7th, 2023, Governor Newsom announced that he would not appeal. Parole was granted, and Leslie Van Houten was released from prison July 11th, 2023, after 53 years in prison, just in time to make it for her 74th birthday. Today, she's a free woman, living her best life, and if she's listening to Murder Coaster, happy birthday, Leslie. And there you have it. The lifetimes and crimes of homecoming queen and Manson family member, Leslie Van Houten. What a wild ride. (laughs) (laughs) That's some story, huh? Yeah, and you know, it's so tough about the whole Pearl thing, because when you look at what Leslie actually did, I mean... There's some that could argue that she didn't, I mean, is it possible that Rosemary was already dead when Leslie Van Houten started stabbing her? Yeah, um, one of the stabs of of either Tex or uh, Katie had severed her spine. Right, so... She was probably definitely dead. And I mean, you could argue, you could go into the whole, like, did Leslie know that? Like, maybe she didn't, maybe they... So, you know, she did stab her. She did stab her numerous times. Um, Only because they made her own. Right. And you could argue that like that. So, all right, if I'm going to play like full devil's advocate, like totally on Leslie's side, you could say she didn't even murder anybody. She was pressured into stabbing somebody after they had already been killed. Um, And then everything that she said about it afterwards was all just you know, the pressure from the family and the effects from the drug use. Uh, So to spend your entire life in prison for, I mean, people have done way less, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a potentially a small thing to have done for the amount of time that she served. But on the other hand, conspiracy too, you know, like she's just part of it all. Right. Right. And she did hold her. And like, you yeah. know, and uh, and Rosemary LaBianca's kids are alive to this day and they're pretty fucking pissed off that she's out, And which I right. understand. I mean, I kind of like walk. I don't know where I even stand on all this because I feel I for the families. I, you know, if someone did that to my family, I'd be fucking out for blood. Yeah, exactly. But then again, That's... like she was fucking a teenager. I mean, she's only 19. She was all caught up in this insanity. She was in drugs and it, just the time period. It really, I think, did seem like, you know, the Vietnam War is raging. There's race riots in the cities. There's just the whole seemed like the country was falling apart. They they thought that they were in the biblical times. I really think they thought that. Yeah. Plus with all that acid on board and it just must have been like it must. You can't you can't put yourself into that headspace. I mean, they were being groomed by the right word groomed groomed by a a cult leader um and just to be in prison until your 70s for something that you did when you're 19 is 
crazy on one hand. But yeah, on the other hand, like if that were my mother that had been killed, I would want the person who did it to, because it like her mother never got to live her life. So why should the person who took her life get to live any of hers? Like I get, I get that part of it too. It's very tough. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It's it's a it's crazy she didn't get the death penalty. So so many weird things with this case. Um, yeah, yeah nuts. totally. So fucking crazy, man. I love and when they're out there in the too. desert. I know. Um, I mean, you and I, like you and I, we became friends over like our shared interest in the Manson murders way back in what 2017. Um, and it's crazy because like I haven't. I think the last kind of mini deep dive I did in anything having to do with the Manson family was when oh god I'm drawing what's the youngest girl we talked about it her book when it Snake. came out Diane when Lake book, when yeah. Diane Lake's book came out a few years back I read that and I got you know kind of fell down the so rabbit good. hole a little bit again yeah um but this this happens where I go like long periods of time and I don't really think about it and I kind of like don't you know, my interest in it wanes a little bit, but then every time I have like opportunity to look into it again, it's just, it's just so fascinating on so many levels. Like all of the pieces that lined up for just this whole thing to work the way it did all the, you know, you know, from the core family member was one thing, but like a hundred people were, you know, like following Charles Manson. He was, he had a hold. And then, you know, then when you go down the rabbit hole of like watching all the prison videos of him, you know, the, so the interviews afterwards. So crazy. I love him. Crazy. I do wish. I American mean, to, icon. This, to this day, like there, there really isn't. And I think, I think this is why it holds such a tight grip over all over all of us in this country or in the world that have ever like, you know, wanted to know what really went down there really has never been like a really good satisfying explanation for all of it. Like there's, it's not like any one of the family members after the fact, like was like, all right, listen, like, let me break it down for you and give you some, some more insight. It's just, there's no, it just seems so unexplained even with as much info as we do have. They all claim it was to free Bobby Boussier, but what, how the fuck did they thought that plan would possibly ever work? It's just beyond me. I don't know. It's fucking crazy. And Bobby Boosie is still in prison as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. And Tex. And they're not, they get denied for parole all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Tex is like super Christian now and like has his own ministry. Yeah. And uh, they they allowed him conjugal. He got married in prison and they, for some reason, allowed him conjugal visits, but no one else charlie never got a conjugal visit and he's got like three or four three kids, kids. yeah three yeah. three kids Crazy. for me you know i was like really caught up in all the hippie shit i uh the grateful dead tour and then me and my wife decided to like drop out of society and move on to like a old commune and like grow weed and so like the manson family is like a symbol to me of everything that could possibly go wrong with a hippie fantasy. Mm. And so I really, because they use so many, and like you will see the tactics that they used. The Grateful Dead tour, we call ourselves family too. It was the family and people would use that word 
as a means of manipulating you like crazy like yeah oh is this family this or you're not family and family this family that as a way of like totally manipulating you and making you do things you know so i could I totally relate to this crazy and you know while we were talking to like um the thing that got me interested in this whole thing in the first place was years ago you know my parents knew how much i liked to read and how much i liked like horror and crime stuff. And um, my dad had always been a huge fan of the Helter Skelter book of Vincent Bugliosi's, um, you know, account of the whole thing. And he like gave it to me to read and I just like devoured it. And just, I still, it's, it's on one of the shelves in this room. I gotta, now I want to like take it down and just like, it's been long, you know, there's a couple books in that you got to wait long enough to make it feel like you kind of are reading it for the first time all over again like it's been right. so long since i read that book i mean obviously i know everything that happens in it but just the way that it's laid out is really interesting did and you read like, chaos uh i think did yeah no i did i, I did yeah i couldn't remember but it, i listened to the audiobook but yeah i did that's some crazy shit yes yep. uh, there's a lot of cool books out there the shadow over the santa Susana pass is pretty good uh, i love the garbage people and, uh, I haven't read that one. It was like a really underground one. That's the one where I got like the details about Bobby and Sadie when Bobby was wearing the Civil War uniform and shit. Mm. There's like, a lot of like behind the scenes, like cool interviews with like random people who are friends with them. And um, of course, The Family by Ed Sanders is really good. Uh, yeah, I got to check out some of the new ones. I definitely I just double checked. I looked at the cover of the Chaos book and I've definitely read it. That's the one all about the CIA. Yeah. Yeah, there were some interesting tidbits in that one that I had never stumbled across before. Oh, he found them. And he, everything in there is backed up. He didn't put anything in there that he couldn't prove. So it's not like, oh, theories. It's like facts. Yeah. I kind of felt like that's, I mean, um, why, why can't I? I always forget her name. Diane Lake? Yeah, Snake. Yep. Um, her book, I felt like, was really, it aired more on, like, facts than, like, uh, it's a memoir uh, but i don't know yeah it's very much like from her perspective but there was a lot of stuff in there that was just a totally different perspective than what you get in the other the other uh, true crime books and you know like the hog farm moved up here by me i mean this is they moved up here like in the 70s or something like that but they were originally in la when she had been on their commune and um like i have friends who take their kids to the wavy gravies fucking kid camp camp win a rainbow and uh, i see wavy gravy around all the time and shit it's crazy it's interesting. i mean i guess i don't know how much he is to blame for that but i'm always like you gave away a young girl to charlie manson crazy yeah lord ah well what do we uh what do we what do we got next week is it a secret we uh we got some 1920s california history very good yeah. Staying in California. <laughs> yeah, I, don't know, I can't get out of here. It was requested by a listener. Very good. Well, we made we an Angelina Jolie movie about it. So. Oh, yes, right. Yes, we hope to deliver on your uh, request. Uh, and so, uh, thank you so much for listening, dear listeners and fellow freaks. And hey, we want to hear from you. Got a request? Uh, do we get something wrong? You just want to say hi? You know, shoot us an email at murder coaster podcast at gmail.com that's murder coaster podcast at gmail.com catch you next time <laughs>